church. Um, it's, it's so cool to be here, to do this, to celebrate a, a timeless story. We're, we're locked in time, but the story and the songs that we sing are eternal. We worship a God that's who was and he is and is to come. He created time, and it's so hard to comprehend that, but we get to join his story this morning, and um, our story is his story. So rehearsing that every week is just, there's nothing better than that. So today's topic is one that um, is very dear to my heart, obviously. This, the topic is, is worship. And the title of the sermon today is that we're called to worship. So, so we're going to be getting into a little bit of the specifics of worship, kind of what it is, kind of what it looks like. Um, towards the end, we're also going to be looking at uh, lyrics and, and music and even a little bit about memory and just the way that God's designed us and, and um, just hitting these topics together. But before, before we talk about that, before we get into the text, I, I wanted you guys to do a little exercise uh, with me, if you, if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind. So I want, when I say worship, what, what comes to mind? Where does your mind go? So I would like you guys to try to picture in your, your, your head uh, an image or sequence that you would define as, all right, that's worship, okay? So does everybody kind of have that picture in their mind or, or something like that? Okay. If I raise a hand, how many of you guys kind of pictured uh, a church setting or something that we did kind of this morning, like something along the church lines or something like that? Okay. Vast majority of you. Just curious, did anyone picture something that was non-church? Nobody, right? One person? Okay. Well, see, that's that's very interesting, but it's... But that's not, like, the the proportions are obviously understandable. But um, something that I want to kind of highlight is that worship is not something that is is strictly uh, for the church, in in a sense, because the word worship has kind of been churchified, and and it it can mean um, multiple things. So I want to kind of paint another picture for you uh, as an example of what I think a worshipful response was back in, I believe it was 2011. I was in the sanctuary, so that's what it was, but uh, instead of of being in a a kind of a worship service, we were watching the Saints and the Colts uh, in the Super Bowl. And I can remember, you know, watching the Saints just went ahead, they're up by seven. Uh, Peyton Manning driving down the field. Reggie Wayne has been eating Tracy Porter's lunch all game and uh, just beating him on that uh, slant route all night. And if you guys remember the, the, the play, uh, third and five, I believe it was, quick slant, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, Peyton Manning drops back, throws a quick yard slant, and Tracy Porter jumps the route, picks it off, and houses it, uh, essentially sealing the Super Bowl for the Saints. And I had a kind of a clip of this, but what was your response? Because I know my response was about jumping 17 feet in the air and running around, and uh, that play is the greatest, the single greatest play in the history of the saints. Uh, but that response, I would venture to argue, that was worship, that it, your hands almost just like go out involuntarily. It was almost like it was a design feature. So, but what is worship? You see, worship is ascribing worth to something. In fact, the English word worship gets its origins from worth-ship. That is, worship is showing and displaying the worth you ascribe to something. 
we worship incessantly. And that is by design. God made you and me to be worshipers. We're constantly worshiping. We can't not worship. Worship never stops for us. It merely changes directions. But we often chase idols in our worship instead of God, right? So maybe football is not your category. Maybe it's music, money, uh, sex, comfort, success, or people's approval. And this is by no means an all-encompassing list because it could mean or be anything. It could even be good things. Whatever we love, trust, and praise the most demonstrated by our actions and time is what we worship. What we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. We can make a good thing an ultimate thing. And that's called idolatry. Idolatry is worship something as ultimate over God, exchanging the created thing or creation over the creator. That's as we see in Romans 1. So today's big idea, and I'll try to repeat a couple times for you guys to be able to write it down, is that we are created and called to worship. We're created, uh, we are created and called to worship God individually and corporately in the way he designed us to. And failing to do so will always lead us to creating idols and worshiping them instead. So again, we are created and called to worship God individually and corporately in the way he designed us to. And failing to do so will always lead us to creating idols and worshiping them instead. Let's read from God's word this morning in Romans 12. In verse 1, it begins this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. God, we come here today to receive from your instruction and how we are to live, God. We, God, help us to see your design and the protection you offer us when we do what you created us to do. Help us to hear from you this morning so that we could be holy and acceptable in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So we're going to look at worship this morning, and, and we're going to look at a few different categories. The first is to continue uh, the first one, which is designed to worship, that we were designed to worship. Then we're going to look at what worship is, and the thirdly, we're going to look at how we are to worship, specifically in the categories of corporate worship on Sunday mornings, the lyrics of the songs that we sing, and then some music elements as well. So designed to worship, what worship is, how we are to worship. So let's continue in the first category of designed to worship. <clears throat> so as I alluded to earlier, we were designed by God to worship. God made us to worship and we will do what we were created to do. But when sin enters the equation, knockoffs and imitations are offered in place of the real thing. Sin wants to take shortcuts, offering 
seemingly the same end result as God offers in the real thing. But what is offered at the end of a shortcut never permanently satisfies. Sin often twists and perverts the good things that God has designed for us and offers it up in a beautiful package that, can ult- that ultimately can only lead to sorrow and pain. As you saw last week uh, in Jeff's sermon, he illustrated a little bit of Adam and the first sin. See, Adam was designed to spend the rest of his life learning about who God was through a relationship with him. This was supposed to take time, like just step by step walking with God, learning more and more and more about him. But what was, what was the temptation? What was offered to Adam and Eve in that moment? Sim offered him the shortcut of knowledge of good and evil in the form of a, of a fruit. The shortcut looked like it was offering that same thing that God was promising, that you get to know everything. And it looked so appetizing, but we know how that ended, right? But this example happens every day in the world, and it continues to attack the church in these categories. God designed the best things in life to be cultivated and groomed, grown and perfected, Sweeter the longer you invest in them. Think of how God designed marriage and and the pleasures therein. Sin comes in and offers shortcuts to those pleasures in the forms of of lust through pornography and adultery. Think of the joy of a parent seeing their children maturing and learning, learning. Sin comes in and offers shortcuts to a misbehaving child in the form of anger and graceless responses from parents. Think of the joy of, the example of of iron sharpening iron in our relationship with one another and the growth that comes from that. Sin comes in and offers shortcuts to controlling relationships through manipulation and lying. See, God designed good things to take time and effort but they're always better and ultimately the only way to satisfy the design of who we are. So what is Romans 12 saying about worship? So Romans 12 is taking a big whole life view of worship, kind of the backed up view, the whole life worship aspect. The author connects the idea of whole life worship to transformation. Reading again, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, in our whole life of worship, our minds are being transformed. And we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Colossians 3 Verse 10, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when we worship God, we become like him. So what does sin do? It perverts the design. So conversely, when we worship the world, our minds are being conformed to think like the world. Bottom line is this, we were designed to become what we worship. 
We either worship worldly things and are conformed to the sinful patterns of the world, or we can worship God and are progressively conformed into his likeness and are satisfied perfectly in him. So when we worship God, we experience the joy we were meant to experience all along because we're doing what we were created to do the way that we were created to do it. And when we do it the way he designed us to do it, we become more like him. Isn't that amazing, church? That he designed it so a way that you worship me, you set your mind on me, you, you lift praises, and you'll be like me. You'll become more like me. That's just so amazing. Don't let us gloss over those kind of facts. It's just, just unbelievable. Man could not write this book. It's just, it's just too incredible. So connecting back to our definition of worship as ascribing worth to something. <clears throat> True worship is then, it's not digging deep, trying to do something we're not used to doing or supposed to do, but instead transferring ultimate value back onto God where it belongs. That is what worship is. So Romans 12 talks about worship on this bigger whole life scale. So let's dive in a little bit into some specifics pertaining to musical worship. We are moving into the category of worship as the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our hearts and our voices and with music. So what worship is? What is worship? And how do we know that God even wants us to worship, specifically with music? Like why do, how do we know that? Well, we know that from God's word. You know that there's more than 500 references to singing in the Bible and more than 50 direct commands to sing. Further illustrating this point, you know what the largest book of the Bible is? It's the Psalms. The Psalms is basically just a built-in hymnal in the middle of your Bible. It's comprised of over 150 songs that these were sung by the church for generations. Scripture couldn't be more clear. The God we worship delights in the sung praises of his people. But I want to stop here for just a moment. An important clarification here is that our worship on Sunday morning doesn't somehow meet a need in God. When we say that you're created to worship, it wasn't because God was lonely and he needed to create some people to, to worship him. And the danger in even trying to think down that path is that it basically makes God not God anymore. Because... God that has needs is not all-powerful, and thus he's not God. So God doesn't need us to, to worship him because it satisfies anything in, in him. It satisfies a need in us. Paul wrote about this in Acts chapter 17, 24 through 25. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. Simply put, God doesn't need you or me. He doesn't, he doesn't need you or me. He is altogether self-sufficient. But like we just said, it doesn't mean a need in God. It meets a need in us. We need it to be conformed into his image like we saw earlier. That's what it accomplishes. Worship changes us. So I just wanted to make sure I clarify that a little bit to make sure it's not heretical in, in my preaching. So continuing. So I've been referencing design a lot, and that, that's definitely intentional. That God made us to respond in hardwired ways. 
pre-programmed. It's just the way we're, we're built. You know, with, with the Tracy Porter pick, we, I just you respond. Like, you just, you can't help it. Um, but what, what is the biblical design of worship? So what is the pre-programming? What is the hardwire of us? Here is the very heart of the biblical worship design. God speaks and reveals himself, and we respond in worship. We can't help it. When, when, we, when we as humans see God who he, as he is, with unveiled face, we will worship, because that's the way he designed it. Worship is a response. And because it is a response, we can't force ourselves into worship. It has to be in response to something, something that we see, something that drives the response. See, seeing God is the catalyst alone that drives true worship. This is the core principle of revelation and response that guides every part of our worship times together. We worship in response to God who has revealed himself to us in his word. Mark Dever uh, said it this way, on Sunday mornings, we need to read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, and see the word. So putting this all together, we need to see God as outlined from the word of God. And when we do, we will respond by design in worship to glorify and honor him. Amen? I love this definition by Rick Melson about worship. He says, worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their mind's attention and heart's affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his work. So I'd like to kind of like walk through a sequence of, of what it looks like to be in worship. Kind of, I like to kind of call it like the dance of worship. And, and God wants to reserve all the glory for himself. So True to, you know, the doctrines of grace, you know, God is the initiator. He's the one that goes first. He steps first. So worship is response to his, his greatness. So, so God steps first. He reveals himself, truth about himself. Often we see this in scripture, only in scripture, but in worship uh, as well. So when we see God, we delight in God. That's the first thing that we do. We delight in God. Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. This isn't some task. Worship isn't some task or obligation or chore that we're just commanded to do. It is itself the ultimate realization of our design. Many of you might be familiar with uh, the Westminster Catechism, very old uh, proclamation of faith, but it has an opening question. It says, what is the chief end of man? I don't know if any of you know it, but it's man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for. So this is not some chore or obligation. This is what we were made for. So we delight in God. Secondly, God delights in us. What is God doing in heaven when we worship him? Is he just sitting on his throne like, yep, that's right. Sing praises. Do it. Come on. You're supposed to do it. No, like, in our call to worship, we actually saw what God does 
when, when we worship and we sing praises to him, he delights in it, but he, he responds in a certain way. In Zephaniah, we see this. It says, when God is glorified with our praise, he takes delight and responds with his own singing over us. After Israel uh, sings in response to God's greatness, God then responds back in Zephaniah 3.17 that we just read. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings back to us. Amen. That's, that's so glorious of a truth. So we delight in God. God delights in us. So what is this next step that happens? We draw near to God. You know, as, as we delight in God, we're then made aware of his presence. And you know, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But he promises to localize or make his presence aware on, on, in the church. He promises, I will meet you here. And that's the Spirit's work in our hearts to make us aware of God's presence. But beyond even just his presence, we can go beyond or further into his presence. We could draw near to him. How, how close can we draw near to God? It says you could go to the throne of God. Hebrews 10 verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus. You know what the holy places was? That was the throne room. That was the holy, you couldn't go in there. You, that, that's not where you're allowed to. It says, but let us draw near. You know, we get to come before a king uninvited. You know how radical that is in terms of, of the Bible, but also just in terms of biblical kings or kings in general? If you came before a king uninvited, it says in Esther, that was punishable by one law, by death. You come before the king, you're going to die, except if you're family. You know, we are sons and daughters of the king. You know, uh, Tim Keller says it: the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Something that kind of struck me is that you, this means that what we're doing on Sunday mornings is worshiping in, like, what it's going to be in heaven. Like, it's, it's, it's not just a glimpse of heaven. It says you are, like, in heaven. Like, when we're before the throne, like, that is where heaven is. Heaven is, the throne is located in heaven with God. This is not just a glimpse of it. This is worship, and this is heaven now. Like Jeff, I likes to say, like, heaven is too powerful to be contained, and it spills over, and it, we can experience it here. Sunday mornings, in worship, that's it. The preach word of God, we can experience heaven right now. Where, where are we on Sunday mornings? We need to be here because there's nowhere else in the world that God promises to meet us like this. So we need to be here to meet him. That's just unbelievable. So, so we draw near to God. We enter into the throne room. What is God's response to that? James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a promise that is. But when God draws near to us, he accomplishes something too.
what he accomplishes is ministering to us. In Hebrews 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when we draw near to God, draw, God draws near to us. And then he strengthens our faith. He fights our battles. He edifies our minds and refreshes our souls. So that is kind of what I like to call the dance of worship. But God is the initiate and he's the one that receives the glory for it. So let's move on to how we are to worship. Well, the good news uh, here is that worship has an owner's manual. All we need to do is follow the instructions. First thing is that worship is about God from beginning to end. Worship is God-focused. That means that God is clearly seen. It is God-centered. God is clearly the priority and God-exalting. God is clearly honored. So God-focused, God-centered, and God-exalting. So we have to do things the way that God says to do it because worship is about him. It's not about us or what kind of we can receive, even though God is gracious to bless us in those moments. It's about him and bringing glory to him. That's what worship is. So Psalm 95, I just want you guys to listen to the words us, all right? Because the first thing about uh, worship and how we're to do it, specifically on Sunday mornings, is together. We're supposed to do it corporately. In Psalm 95, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We don't sing corporately on Sundays because it was somehow our idea or some kind of tradition. This is God's mandate. You come together as the body of Christ. Sunday mornings, you worship. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's what we just sang this morning. Magnify the Lord with me. That we, This is not some individual moment that it's just it's just me and Jesus time uh, now those those moments are so wonderful and God promises to do that but primarily that's actually supposed to be kind of in your week in your prayer closet that's where God wants to meet you in that way but he he's gracious and we can have those moments here but on Sunday mornings you're supposed to be here together singing with the body of Christ um, but for a purpose because corporate worship is not a, a spectator event we need every person engaged because every person has a unique role to play in the singing. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You see, we as the worship team, we might be up here in the front. We might have the instruments and the microphones. But one thing that's it's important to remember is that we're not here to, to kind of worship at you. We're not here to worship for you. We're here to worship with you. Um, and something that highlights this is, do you know what the most important instrument every Sunday it is? Does anyone want to guess? The voices. The voices of the redeemed is the most important instrument on a given Sunday. We all bring our own stories to this, to this throne right? 
and, and we carry it in a certain way. And, and so when we sing, it just means more. God, you know, those designs that God's talking about, the pre-programming, he causes us to respond in a certain way. You know what the best parts of worship are? It's when we can hear each other sing. When we drop out and it's just the voices, that's the most glorifying time. I, and it ministers to us in a way that's just hard to explain. But we're here to minister to one another in a way. And it says this in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are here to build each other up in our worship. We're supposed to encourage one another and build each other up. And the way that we do that is singing over one another. We sing the truth. We sing you in the faith. That means Sunday mornings, you know, it, it's not optional. You're not supposed to be ditching church. I know this seems kind of harsh, but it's not. You need to be at church. I, I know this, this is why the, the, this, whole, this whole time with cor the coronavirus and being separated is so hard, specifically for the body of Christ and for people. But God designed us to be together and serve one another and build each other up. We're not just individuals, but we're one body. So we need to be here because God designed us to minister to one another and to build each other up in our worship. Martin Luther said this about corporate worship. He says, at home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. We need to stoke each other's fires. Because, you know, every Sunday, the reality is that people are coming into this room with different stories, with different walks in their life. They're asking questions like, could God ever forgive me? How can I sing to God right now and what I've done? Is my marriage going to make it through this? Has God forgotten me? Is he going to leave me in this suffering? So we don't know what's going on on Sunday mornings with people. But that's why we need the church to uplift. It says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We need to lift each other up in our worship. The second how of our worship is the content or lyrics of our songs that we sing. So worship begins and ends with God, right? So that means that our worship and our lyrics need to begin and end with the word of Christ. Like we said previously, worship is a response to God's word. So our lyrics need to be rooted in, led by, and saturated with the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. We want to value the word of Christ over everything else. We don't sing our opinions or guesses about God. We sing what God has revealed in his word. We want the songs that we sing to be easily identifiable in the word of God. If you sing a lyric, we want you to be able to point to a verse and say, that's where God says that. Because that is the only truth that promises to change our hearts. So, but one thing that's important is that we also want songs that are honest about Christian life. You know, we, we, can, we can tend to be a little bit... Um, what's the word? Uh, gospel... Um, Prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. You know, we can renounce prosperity gospel that, you know, you know, God's not going to just continually 
you know, bless you and you're going to get healthier and stronger and all that stuff. But sometimes our worship can take a singular focus of just praise. But that's not honest with the reality of the Christian life, that there's, there's still suffering, that there's still sin, that there's still moments where downcast, of my, our souls are downcast. But that's why our songs need to reflect that reality. So let me describe it in this way. Imagine that someone started to attend our church that had never read the Bible, never heard a sermon, and had never heard the name of Jesus in their life. Further suppose that for the, f- the first few weeks, the person um, didn't listen to any of the sermons. It seems like a really bad attendee, by the way. So he didn't listen to any sermons, no testimony, no other information. So they only knew about God what they heard about in worship. What would they know about God? What attributes would they know? Would they, would they know only about God's love? What about his holiness, his faithfulness, his worthiness, his grace, his mercy, and patience? Would they be able to say anything about the Trinity? What about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that we still battle sin here on earth? You know what the most common psalm category is in the Bible? The songs of lament. There's 42 psalms of lament in the Bible. So we want to make sure that we're not being dishonest with our worship and saying everything is, is better than the day before, that we're, you know, that every day is a happy day because some days, yeah, it, it just doesn't feel like that happy day. But that's when the church can lift each other up. But we need to be honest about those things when we sing. So what we sing needs to line up with Scripture. We don't need to sing something that is vague or unbiblical or distorted or based on our own interpretations. So if the lyrics of a song are that, they're vague, they're unbiblical or they're distorted or would have to be interpreted in a certain way consistently or left up to the church to interpret, it's just not a song that we were going to try to do and incorporate because um, a calling that God has put onto the church is in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in as in all the churches of the saints. So we, there's so many wonderfully deep and rich and, cons- and theologically consistent songs. So there's no need to pick those kind of other songs because we don't want to cause any kind of confusion with the body. Also kind of a little bit of a, a pet peeve of mine. Uh, if you could replace the name of God with another God or or maybe the name of a girlfriend or girl or something like that, and the song would still make sense, that is not a song that we want to be singing because that's shallow and it, it's, it just bothers me. It's like, this sounds like he's just singing to his girlfriend right now. <laughs> that's not a worship song. Um, I heard it said that if your, your songs are shallow, uh, you know, shallow and subjective, then you're going to find Christians that are shallow, shallow and subje- subjective. All that's to say is this is the most important factor. We need truth in our songs. The world wants to undermine truth. The culture wants to make feelings an objective truth. But we as believers need to fight that message and know that there is only one unchanging truth. That is God. So we need to have lyrics that reinforce those truths every Sunday. It's our song from age to age. We rehearse the story of the gospel every Sunday. We need to see Jesus in our lyrics every Sunday. 
you know, we're consistently being pressured to believe the lies of the world. And as we talked about before, what are you worshiping? What are you setting your minds on? Are you being conformed to the image of the world? Are you being dwelling on the word of God and being conformed and transformed in your mind to the image of Christ? That's why the lyrics matter. Because when we focus on truth, it's easier to see when the lies come in. You know, you know how you could discern a lie? It's not trying to figure out what all the lies are. It's to focus on the truth. Study the truth. Dwell on the truth. And when that lie comes, you will know it's a lie because it doesn't line up with the truth. So how, how are we dwelling? What are we worshiping? What are we setting our minds on? And that's why it's important to have songs that sing deep things about God. Because when we can dwell on these truths about God, that's when we can become like him and discern those lies. The last how of our worship uh, that I want to talk about is just music and how it kind of plays a role. You know, because what I've been focusing on mostly is that we need to focus on truth, that we worship in truth. But the second half of that verse that I say is you worship in spirit and in truth. That's kind of to say that music and and the, the quality of the song are important because if the song stinks, then it doesn't matter how good the lyrics are, you're not going to remember it or want to keep on singing it and dwell on it because what worship isn't is just a recitation of facts about God. That's not what worship is. John Piper says, um, when the feelings about God are dead, your worship is dead. So we need songs that stir the emotions in our heart, but music can be dangerous in that way because music is designed to stir things in our heart <clears throat> independently of the lyrics. You know, God designed music to move us in certain ways. So um, one way I'm going to illustrate this is just think about your favorite movie scene. And now a movie scene preferably that would like get you emotional or something that really just kind of goes over the top. Like, ah, oh, it's a great movie scene. You know, Think back to that scene. Is, is it devoid of music? You know, because almost every single movie, you know, uses music to highlight or accentuate or to, to uh, match the, the, the script in a way that just is like, ah, yes. And, and one way that I, I think this is perfectly illustrated is uh, from the movie Up. <clears throat> so the movie, Disney Pixar movie Up, the opening um, montage is from Carl and Ellie uh, in their life. It's their married life together. Right, and so this was the first movie that Amber and I actually watched after we were married, and that was not a really great. Uh, if anyone knows about this, you know, you know uh, where I'm going with this. But something that's really interesting about that is that the tears were flowing in this opening scene. It's about three or four minutes uh, of the montage. But do you know there's there's no audible dialogue in that section at all? It's just a montage of a life set to music. That alone drives our response to really like, oh my gosh, this is just too much because the music can move us in ways that God designed us to. If you remember Rudy Rudiger in the, the five foot six defensive end for Notre Dame, uh, when he gets into the game in the end of the movie and gets the sack to end the game, spoilers for the 1993 movie for anyone out there, but 
what makes this scene impactful is the swelling of that score that comes behind as people chant his name. But it's the music that puts it over the top. So, So what's dangerous about music? The danger is that we make music the thing that we worship. Uh, Romans, you know, 125, you know, we exchange that the created thing for the creator. Well, who created it? He did. So we want to make sure that the music is good, but that if, if, if the lyrics are shallow, the music can deceive us into thinking the song is deeper than it actually is. And, and we need to never sacrifice theology for emotion. Because God designs us music to respond in a certain way, but we need to make sure that the music matches the content. So, but when you are able to, as a, as a songwriter, and songwriters and generations, match the content and the lyrics, you know, with the emotion that you can communicate in music, that's when you have a song that's sung by gen- for generations, and it's just impactful. But a lot of people don't even really understand the nuances of music to understand that this that's what makes us feel good. Um, my favorite verse in all of worship is the third verse of It Is Well with the Elders. It's the line that says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So the lyrics alone are enough to drive response, but it's probably because you're hearing the music. This is really strange. I really want to demonstrate what I'm talking about here in this in this thing. This is just a different kind of Sunday. So what I want, one thing is, so the opening line here is my sin. So that's communicating a solemn thought. So traditionally, you're opening the verse on a major chord, right? So, but in this verse, you open in a minor chord to communicate the solemnness that the writer is talking about. So my sin and then the first sprinkle of hope is of this glorious thought is the first major that's introduced of this glorious thought then back down my sin another minor my sin not in part diminished chord see how this is making me feel right now but the this is a suspended chord. So this is a chord that's supposed to build suspense for that major release that God's designed us for. But the whole, you can hear it building musically, right? Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no This is a way that we can use music to match the content, to make the emotions match the lyrics. And when you have that, it's beautiful to a song that is deeper than deep. But when a song doesn't have that, it doesn't feel as good. And the music is natural. And so what we want to do as well
you than I can tell you. Every single one of you probably knows that you've been treated by Satan in some way. You know, you learned the books of the Bible and hear all these things that you saw, you know, and I can still remember the creator of the conversation that we had about Christ. Because this is just the way that God designed us to be. You know, I've referenced this before. God designed us for himself. God designed us for his glory and for his glorification. But we need to have the law put on our hearts so that when we dwell in our minds and think of him, that that would be